The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Hi, my name is Lisa Davis, and welcome to Creative Conversations. I'm here today with Morgan Appel from UCSD Extension and my colleague, Gabriela Baeza Delgado, and we work at the San Diego County Office of Education. We have been meeting throughout COVID, right, group? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have yeah. been doing a lot of work during COVID, and this is the first creative conversation that we would love to share with you all. We have been discussing learning and how learning is expanding, and we will be just um thinking through some of these really important topics and also putting our futuristic hats on and trying to see what will be um, in store for us in the future with regards to education and learning. And um, maybe some new stuff will come out of that. So without further ado, Morgan. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Lisa, Lisa, Gabby. It is, it is great to have you here at, at UCTV. And ha- hard to believe that it's, it's almost been a year, if, if not more, that we have um, been dealing with this, that we've been navigating the labyrinth uh, of the pandemic. And I think for, for a lot of us, I think all of us were, were caught off guard. And those of us in education, I think, are, are still trying uh, to keep, te- uh, you know, to, to keep up um, and to uh, make up some ground in, in some respects. But uh, we've had an opportunity to have some incredible conversations over this last year, over the different stages of the pandemic. And here we are looking perhaps at a return to school, a return to campus in the not so different future. Now, we know that um, the learning environments have changed and we are talking about sort of this jarring tectonic shift from in-person learning to remote learning where all of us sort of scrambled to, to figure out what the new normal would be like. And we know that that has both magnified and exacerbated some of the pre-existing inequities and other matters that we have seen. But I think the, the, the biggest impact, and at least in, from my vantage point, has been the socio-emotional impact. And I think uh, that kids are fantastic about adapting uh, to technology and they've been using it, but it's this sort of disruption of routine um, and, and this, this instability that, that came as a result. And I think we're just getting used to right now um, remote learning and, and being at home and, and being with families. But as we look as, at sort of a medium to long-term horizon, we're looking at going back to campus. And I think that our kids and our teachers and our parents all have expectations of what that might look like. And I think a lot of people are thinking January 2020, although uh, rationally, uh, we know that is not the case and that we really can't ever go back to that time. So would love to put it to you as our first topic of conversation. If the learning environment is not going to be the same, what is it going to look like? So what do you all think? Well, I think it's safe to say it's going to look, like you were saying, very different um, and not going to be as one would want it to be. And I think that's um, something that's been an ongoing part of, I know, our uh, ongoing dialogue, which is we have to embrace 
the fact that things will be different. Um, I do think that as schools begin their planning, as much as we want to recreate the past, and by that I mean we want to recreate the school environment with what it was pre-COVID, and we're not at a place to be able to do that, and we may not be uh, for quite some time. And so I, I hear you, Morgan. I do think there are some major implications that some of our sites need to consider. Um, and one of them is that uh, there is going to be, and there already is a lot of anxiety for both our students, our parents, and our staff about just even the return to work. So when we've been out of our routine for almost a year now, um, even as adults, we have a hard time. You can imagine how that is magnified for children. So especially in the K through 12 sector, you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lot of um, much needed time to adjust to those transitions. Uh, and I can imagine also for the, uh, the higher ed, it's the same. These are young adults who are used to doing things one way and are now being asked to do it in a different way. And that just tends to throw people for a loop. We don't do well just adapting to change um, because we like it. It actually takes us quite some time to adapt. So I think there are some some definite implications that we want to consider. And um, as a former counselor, I would encourage folks to really look at what is that transition period time going to look like for our students coming back? And then what does it look like for our staff coming back? We tend to focus a lot on students and sometimes the staff can get lost in that conversation because they're people too and we're human. And so we might need some assistance with the transition to coming back, whatever the school day does look like. We know it's not going to be, like I said, like it was pre-COVID. So there's going to be some changes. One thing in particular for our, our students is that the behavior may not be the same. So you might have students in the classroom who were doing really well pre-COVID, and maybe they did okay during remote learning. But coming back, they're, again, if they're not provided with those buffers, you might have students that you didn't have to actually provide a whole lot of support to pre-COVID that now you may have to. So there could be some anxiety levels that are definitely on the rise for our young people and also for adults. Um, I think because some students figured out distance learning, but they maybe didn't have that same structure that they would have had when they were in, a, in an actual brick and mortar location. Just having the routine and having to sit for, for as long as some of our school days typically run for, that is enough to, uh, to make some kids think, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm kind of thrown for a loop here because I'm not, this isn't what I was used to for the last, you know, 11, 12 months. So I think there's some potential behavior concerns that we can definitely um, consider coming back. And then by that, it's, so how do we prepare our teachers to make sure you're not just having to focus on the, the teaching aspect. It's now we have to also deal with the possible behavior interactions that you might that you might encounter with some of the students that might um, might present some barriers to their learning and barriers for you to be able to deliver your content. Mm -hmm. And and there's no mute button in person. Not in person. There's no just getting up and and walking away. So so Lisa, I think this poses an interesting question. We have a longer runway now to 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 uh, take care of these issues and to really think about them. Um, one of the things that we know uh, from reports from kids about remote learning is that they missed meaningful interactions and they missed spontaneous conversations. Um, how do you see that being impacted as we move forward? I think that's a really important question. I don't think that we're framing it the way that we should, because 
we hear a lot about learning loss. You, I mean, that's constantly now in the news when we talk to educators and we talk to individual schools in San Diego County, they're talking about learning loss. But I think what Gabby was saying is that what about the re-engagement or kind of the, you know, the, the, the process that's going to be needed to transition young people, teachers back into a classroom that's really changed and it, it's never going to be the same. I, I don't think that's really, that's really stuck um, in the minds of people as we you know, have been trying to move a mile a minute to respond to COVID, that it, it isn't going to be the same. And, and it, interestingly, Morgan, early on, um, we were lucky enough because we work in the expanded learning field and we have, um, San Diego is a consortium of expanded learning schools. We were able to push out a really deep survey to our adolescents. And we had over 4,764 respondents in the, the course of the month of June, even after they had left. And even during that first couple months when they were recollecting what was going on with them, it was all about relationships. The, the scores were off the roof for both the teachers missing the kids and feeling like teaching wasn't teaching if they didn't have the relationships, which was great, great to hear, but also the students and the relationships with their teachers, but also that they were reconnecting with their family. They were reconnecting with their, their sense of self. So a lot of them were sharing about how they started a new hobby or they were trying to get fit. And so you have this period of time, this year that we've had, where we've really been in a creative process, I would think. We were exploring our learning, we're trying new things, we've kind of been, you know, pushed out into the ocean and we we've we've swam. So I, I would like to kind of reframe this idea of, you know, the deficit way of thinking that there is learning loss. What about the resilience this year? has proven over and over again that families, teachers, and, and especially young people have been so resilient to be able to manage something that we would have never thought possible. And, and Lisa, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because the research also suggests that one of the silver linings in this otherwise dark cloud is that um, our children and our young adults are reporting a greater sense of resilience, that they are actually saying that we are stronger for being able to get through this. Uh, and um, certainly, I think that if, if, if anything else, um, that we have had a unique and limited window of opportunity for our, our practitioners to explore their own pedagogical artistry, to dip into their creativity because they've had to. Um, but certainly when we talk about education, I think we understand that informed conversations about education occur when everybody is speaking the same language, albeit in different dialects, and parents play such an important role. And I'm wondering uh, from, from, from you, Lisa, and from you, Gabby, where do you see uh, parents who've been running schools out of their homes for the last year or so, um, what is their role in in providing um, uh, support for the adjustment their kids will have to make? Well, I think for most parents, there will probably be a large collective sigh of relief because I think a lot of parents, at least those we've connected with and, and know personally, they were not prepared 
um, to go beyond what they were already doing as a parent. So when their child would get home and they'd spend time reviewing homework and, you know, traditional, uh, you know, quote unquote parent duties to be thrust into this role, I think was very difficult for a lot of parents. And so they're probably looking forward to the, let the experts really take over because I don't want to um, miss a step in my child's education. So from parents that I've talked to, that was a concern is it's not because I don't want to, or because I'm struggling juggling is I don't know if I'm, I'm uh, the best prepared person to uh, deliver the, the lessons and the content. I'm not a trained teacher. You know, I work in a completely different field. And so I think you'll get some parents who are happy. My child's going back to school. We're establishing these routines because they want the learning to begin to, to um, um, take shape the way that it was before and so that they don't feel that, that pressure and that responsibility of, I don't want to get it wrong. But I think the parents play a very critical piece in the transitioning back to, or transitioning to the new way that we're doing learning, I should say, not transitioning back. It's the new way of, of us moving forward. And parents in particular will be, um, I think, need to really have strong communication with their teachers and their school sites so that once you open up those channels, we know is this typical behavior that we're seeing with your child or not? Is there something that you're seeing at home that I should be looking for in the classroom? Having conversations with uh, multidisciplinary team members, such as counselors, social workers. So those wraparound services that are available at school sites, those key personnel are extremely important. And so parents needed, needing to establish relationships with them and vice versa, that the schools also establish that relationship with the parent to engage in that communication to say, what is going on at home? Here's what I'm seeing in the classroom. What can we do um, in the new learning environment at school? And then what are things that you can do in the home environment to support? So that we're on the same page because they are a team, the teacher and the parent and the child. So I think that's that would be my first recommendation is have that communication with the teacher and the school staff so that they know what is going on outside of the school environment. And that way the parent also knows what's happening at the school that I need to be aware of as a parent so they can best support my child when, when they're back at home. So that's where I would start is establishing that relationship and having clear communication. Even, even if you think it's something small that you should, you know, it's not a big deal. I don't want to bother the teacher with it. Send them that message because that may be connected to something else that the teacher saw while the student was in their care. So you just never know. Don't underestimate. Don't, don't, you know, it's your child. So you want to go, um, you know, don't leave any stone unturned when it comes to making sure their needs are met. And, and I think we've all always understood the importance of clarity, but maybe not have acted on it. So, so Lisa, let me ask you this. Um, are we looking more at a pastiche of parents and teachers and students and administrators working together? If we're not going back to um, the way things were, are we looking at a more tightly interwoven structure for education? I think so in some respects, and I would really urge administrators to start thinking about when they plan to come back to school, when we're really coming back, um, when COVID is behind us and we're not in this kind of state of limbo that they really begin to think about the parents and the students. We talk about student voice all the time, but we really don't execute on it. And we need to come together as a community to have stakeholder meetings. And that would be one of the first things that I would say, you really need to, to 
have a community and ask your, your parents and your students to join in on the community that you're going to be creating. And I, it, it, I can't underestimate, I think that the administrators that do that from the beginning will really start to set the tone to create a new learning environment. And, you know, that's, that's the key is we're, we are in our learning environments are, are the curriculum and it, they're built around the curriculum. We test around the curriculum and, um, and that's the measure of a person's learning during those grades K through, through college. But are we, I would, I would ask you this question, Morgan, are we at a point from this experience with COVID that learning truly is expanding? We're thinking about it from the brain science point of view. We're thinking about from the social emotional point of view, even the anthropological point of view, where we now know that we're one of many, you know, species of, 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 you know, intellectual, creative individuals. So how do we take all of this that we know that we have the research and we have the history about what learning is and start to incorporate it into a new kind of vision of this communal uh, family way of learning that can take us into the 22nd century and beyond? What, what are your thoughts, Morgan, on that? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I see these conversations happening spontaneously all over. So there, there is something happening. There, there is an undercurrent of the need to move in this direction. And certainly it's easy to, um, you know, hold community meetings and it's easy to do those kinds of things. But we need to really act on it with fidelity and lend voice and empowerment. And I think that's where you are, are going with this, Lisa. And uh, certainly, I think part of what we're going to do for the 22nd century will take us all the way back perhaps into ancient times when education was more fluid and, and more porous and perhaps more meaningful and less sort of structured to, to meet the needs of a more industrial economy. So I think in a lot of ways we uh, look back to move forward. And I think in the immediate term, things may not be easy. I think we're in for a bumpy ride. I think we're in for a bumpy landing Certainly, um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel is long and the light is dim, but we are, are getting there. But again, I think we have a unique and narrow window of opportunity to sort of act on all of these ideas. So assuming that we are able to return in, in some way or another and, you know, really um, get back to the business of, of teaching and learning, that's the immediate future. I'm wondering, what does the longer term look like? Uh, not, I'm not saying necessarily the, the 24th century, but what does 2022, 2023, 2024, what do those look like and what lessons have we learned? Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but if I did, I would like to see in that crystal ball that some of these pieces that we're alluding to about embracing um, just the way that we do business and education from a, a different open mindset really have come to fruition. Um, and like you said, it's going to be slow and probably very painful for a lot of folks who are in the system to make these changes. We had one year because we were forced to do these things, but now we're really at this crossroads of we are, we will eventually in the near future have choice 
over how we do things moving forward, because we won't be in this pandemic for that much longer, hopefully. So I would like to think that in the next several years, we get to see this innovation really begin to take off and that the learning that that Lisa's talking about, that communal, the, the family way of learning is integrated into our school system and treated with as much respect and value as a formal um, structured uh, type of learning. And so I'd like to see that there's remnants of things that we've seen already begin to take shape, that now they're they're really um, part of the fabric of our school system moving forward. And we know, like I said, it will take some time, but I'd like to see that we're starting to really integrate different ways. Uh, COVID this year really forced schools to look at their grading policies in a very different way. How do you assess when you, you don't have the ability to see them in person? So it really challenged us. But I also think, you know, it took a pandemic to get a lot of us to be creative. And so in a, in a lot of ways, we might want to be also thankful for the experience to say it did actually stretch us in ways that we weren't expecting, but but there's a lot of gifts that came with that. And so I'd like to see that those gifts that are we're starting to see the seeds being planted now can really then come to bloom in the next few years. So I, I'm hopeful that ongoing conversations like this, we just started talking and a lot for us, we've done a lot of creative work in the last year of pushing our own thinking and boundaries. I would love to see what that could look like for the entire system um, of education. So what does it look like when we just, um, like you said, revisit the old to recreate the new moving forward? Well, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you, Lisa. Does post-secondary education have a role in this? I mean, it's a, it's a fairly rigid structure at times. It's fairly glacial at times. What is our role in, in sort of uh, looking forward? Oh, absolutely. I, I wish that I, I, I want everyone to think about it in terms of, you know, we, we talked about systems, Gabby, and it's, you know, right now we have kind of this closed system of K through 12, or we're in and then your space in higher ed. And, you know, over this year, we've kind of tried to break that down. And that is the future. I think it is more of this kind of Socratic communal um, way of learning. And we're probably a, a really great example just in our year of innovating and, and being creative and thinking. I, I'm i very optimistic that we can do that. And, and you know, one of the things um, that I, I had just the treasure of an experience was to work at a school here locally in San Diego, where we did exactly that. We opened up and became an open system of schooling where we engaged in what I would call these anchor projects or project-based learning school. And we would engage in anchor projects where we would work with not only, you know, our school and the curriculum or whatever that was standards wise, but we would also engage the community city of Chula Vista, city of San Diego. We would also engage higher ed and all of us would be working for one common goal. And it wasn't meant to solve any problems. It was just meant to expand the periphery, um, the the system, the the students' networks of what they knew and what they know and what they could begin to start innovating and creating because they're thinking differently. And and so I think that's really what we're poised to do with higher ed, building these bridges together and to be able to sync up research if you're doing research in cognitive, you know, science around 
what the effects of project-based learning might be, and you're in a lab, then how do you take that information that you've learned and get it out to K-12? And how do we have administrators that are not, you know, that are, that are open enough to understand that there are different curricular pieces um, that are outside just the standards so that they can begin to even think about dialoguing with community members in higher ed to do something differently. So absolutely. I mean, I think that's why we're here together, Morgan. Hard pressed to disagree. I am wondering uh, from both of you, we're talking about creative conversations. Number one, who needs to be involved in these creative conversations? Because we're talking primarily about educational institutions. Lisa, you alluded to the fact that cities and communities and, and um, you know, organizations need to be involved. But who beyond uh, those of us who t- traditionally sit at the education table need to be involved? And how do these conversations begin? So I would say, besides the usual suspects, right, that you just mentioned, it's important we have youth and young people at the table because none of the adults that have that are in this room can say, well, I don't know. We don't know what it's like to have gone through school in the pandemic. Only young people do. So in this respect, they know more about this than we do. So we try to analyze it from the adult perspective. We think, but we actually don't know what it is like to be on the receiving end. I don't know what it would have been like to go through high school sitting on in front of a computer. I don't know what that would have been like when I wanted to take my labs, uh, you know, for for my biochemistry at, at, on the campus. So I think it's really important that we um, do not minimize the impact of their perspective and their thoughts. Um, because oftentimes we we mean well in systems by creating um, new ways, new innovative ways of doing things, really for for the benefit of students going through the process. But we oftentimes do not include their voice. So we think we have the answer. And so I think it would behoove us to all say, of course, we want all you know parents involved. We want the educators involved. We want um, you know, high level scholarly people involved, but we also need the young people who have gone through it, who do have the practical experience to be at the table to say, here's what did work. Here's what did not work. Here's what we did enjoy and gain from distance learning. And then here's maybe what we, what we missed out on. I think that, um, just as someone who's, who's been a practitioner and has served young people, it's, it's near and dear to my heart that we include them in, in their, process. And so oftentimes we jump ahead and we we bypass that particular group. But I think this is extremely important that we have an opportunity to to make sure from the beginning they're at the table so that we gather. Like like Lisa, you've been gathering that feedback locally, but I think really creating these spaces with intention to say we want to make sure that youth uh, and youth voice is at the table every step of the way. You are so spot on, Gabby, with that. Um, I, I think it's going to be processes that we have to develop to engage students too in a way that also um, engages administrators and teachers. So it's there's some more stuff to innovate around there um, in that respect. But you know, having done two counselors and a mic, our podcast this year, like and you were talking about this creative endeavor, like that is an opportunity to engage people in telling their stories. And maybe that's the place to start, Morgan, is 
you know, what we're doing is telling our stories of COVID and having the students to start to engage by telling their specific stories and also listening to teacher stories, you know, parent stories. So having those forums in which to engage crucial uh, creative conversations up at, up at the front. Yeah. And, and I do think that a lot of these initial creative conversations, whether they've been with um, teachers or, or, or district administrators, came out of necessity and a sense of urgency. I think we are able to dig deeply. Maybe it's part of our primitive survival mechanism to dig deeply and to be creative when we need to. And now we are um, looking where we have a little bit more time uh, to to see what we uh, what we are capable of and where we want to go, um, I'm wondering that as we sort of transition from the immediate future to the near term future to the far term future or the long term future, is education a more joyful endeavor? We talk a lot about putting Maslow before Bloom, and we talk about social emotional learning, and we know. Cognitively, we'd understand the sort of neuroscience of it is, is you know, if you are able to um, be competent and be confident, you're, you're rewarded for doing that and you experience a sense of joy. Are we in for a more joyful education as we move forward? I would hope so. I think in all of our conversations, what we always land on is that the more that students are engaged in their own learning, the more that you've got strong relationships with both the student and the parent, the, the, the better the outcome really for, for all involved. And, you know, there is joy in learning. And, and typically, at least in my experience, I've seen that when kids are excited to come to school and not because they've been gone, you know, living at home or doing remote learning, but because they're actually excited to see their teacher connect with their friends. They're excited about a cool robotics class that, you know, they're doing a really neat project or something like that. I think that, you know, the pandemic might've made a, a little damper on that for some students, but I think that's the key is if we can re-engage them, their love of learning hasn't died. It was maybe muted. <laughs> a little bit because it was done differently. And so I think that, again, that, that engagement piece is so important. If we can get that, I'd like that spark again for both our teachers who've been um, at this point probably needing a, a well overdue break. Uh, but if we can uh, reinvigorate their learning um, and their engagement for teaching, then that's going to trickle down to students to say, I, I actually do want to come. And not just because I know it's good for me and my growth, but because I want to be here and learn and it's, and it's joyful. We don't ever want students to feel like it's a punishment to come to school. For many, that's what it feels like because it's not a safe place for them to be. They don't feel the love when they come there. But if we turn that around and we say, it actually, it is a good place for you to be. We love it when you're here. We, we like seeing your face. We like having your, your ideas shared. If they feel valued and respected when they're there, they're more likely to then um, engage in their own learning. So I definitely think I think that there's an opportunity for, for those students who haven't experienced joy for that to be reinstated for them. And, and, and Lisa, I know, um, you know, we've had discussions about positive psychology and the power of flow and, and those things um, that we, we really aspire to. So all of these ideas and, and strategies, when we talk about things like differentiation of instruction or personalization, it's all going toward that uh, flow channel. 
Do you see that um, we will be there more frequently in the future? I think we're probably already seeing it in a lot of homes doing some crazy experiential learning pieces. I, I think that's where we, we all move toward growth. We all learn every day. And from the moment we're, you know, infants until today, we're always growing. And I think we need to merge this idea that learning isn't stuck just in the curriculum. It is a part of what you were saying. It's like, it is part of who we are as human beings. And that, that is the joyful piece of learning that sometimes I think we've, we've kind of gone on the wrong track thinking about just, you know, measuring a student's ability based on a test. And I think we need to have some frank conversations too, to be able to get us to the point where we have this energy, a student, like you're saying, Morgan, a young person should want to go to school because they're building a structure they've never built before, or they're learning about some kind of molecule because their parents might have a disease and they make the connection. And as educators, that's really what we've always been. We've always made the connection, whether it was in the one room schoolhouse and we had to get out to the rural communities and we were bringing knowledge to the rural communities, um, you know, or what we're doing right now over digital, you know, digital is like, I always say, uh, I take a different take on it. I think about it as the new cave wall because we're really, you know, that's what we did when we were able to put our handprints on that cave wall. We're doing the same thing and we're seeing the same thing with our young people who are using Instagram and Snapchat and all these other things that they do to kind of put their value system out in the world and and to connect with others. So we have the tools and we definitely are um, anthropologically minded to move toward growth, resilience. We have that grit. And all we need to do is kind of tune that frequency a little bit to get the flow that you're talking about. And could you just imagine coming to a campus, Morgan, where you can feel that physically because all these people are engaged in learning, no matter what what age they are. Incredible. It's a really uh, a palpable sense of energy, and I think when you go into um, a, a classroom where learning is is happening and teaching is well done, you can feel that it it's electric and and it's energetic. And I do agree with you, Lisa. I do think that. Um, TikTok may be the, the new cave walls because that's where we are telling our stories and not hoarding our stories, but, but spreading them so people understand how we best live. Now, I know that we have um, a fairly limited amount of time left, so I want to pose uh, a bit of a, a, a closing question or, or, or something to, to think about. Now, I think in the, in the shorter term, we know we're in for somewhat of a bumpy ride as, as we sort of readjust and, you know, um, we mitigate expectations and we deal with those things that, um, you know, are part and parcel of a return to campus. In the the near to intermediate term, um, things are looking brighter. And I hope that, you know, everyone involved in our school communities and everyone in our, our communities will, um, you know, continue the the creative pursuits, whether they're personal creative pursuits or whether they're professional, but really uh, imbue um, the learning experience with creativity. Now, again, we talk about 
the impacts of disruption of routine and, you know, the the way of doing things prior to the pandemic was perhaps a sense of comfort because you knew what to expect. We're leaving safe harbor and we're traveling into open ocean. So um, what I'd like to do is ask you both, what is your advice for the teacher of 2030? What advice can you give them? The teacher of 2030. Well, I would give them advice that was given to me, actually, by someone in this chat. <laughs> uh, Lisa actually shared with me at the beginning. She said, Gabby, just embrace the chaos. And for somebody who, like me, I know a lot of teachers are also very structured. They are great at lesson planning. Um, I was never a teacher. I was a counselor. But I shared similar traits as a lot of teachers where they because you do have to be very uh, organized to to put all those lesson plans together. And um, if if someone like me who's very structured and does not like changes to routine is able to sit back and take a deep breath and really embrace what could be without having a roadmap to get there, without being able to control it, um, then I think the teacher of 2030, if they can just take a little bit of that and say, just Take deep breaths, be gentle with, with yourself, but embrace what maybe is not known. Embrace that chaotic time or space that you might be in because you really don't know what can come of it until you do. And so like Lisa mentioned, when we embarked on a lot of the projects that we did this last year, would I have done that prior to COVID? Probably not because I just thought, I don't think there was a need for it. We didn't need to embark on all these different things, but there was an opportunity and we definitely seized the moment. And so I would say to that teacher in the near future is um, just because it's not structured or written down somewhere, it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be amazing. You just ha you have to be open to embracing and, and letting go of, of those control um, mechanisms that we put in place uh, and, and embrace it. And then just be open to what could be if you're a little bit innovative or just think a little bit outside of that traditional box. Imagine what, what it could be for you and then imagine what that, what that could mean for students. So embrace your amazing. <laughs> yes. Love and embrace that. the chaos. <laughs> Love that. Embrace the chaos. Embrace your amazing. Lisa, advice for the teacher of 2030. Oh, my gosh. I would, I would tell them that they need to remember their epiphany as you so eloquently say, Morgan, but that also they're facilitators of growth and to start, you know, that, that they need to embrace what has been developed over the, the next nine years um, as learning has expanded and then really embrace the fact that they are facilitators for the growth of another human being. And that might mean that they will need to look at their own, what I call uh, their sense of provenance, that they understand the, um, the opportunities that they received in the past, how they got to being where they are today, so that they can start to understand that a lot of our kids don't have that same opportunity and they don't come from the same place of experience. And so let's reframe the 2030 teacher as the um, experiencer facilitator, because that's what they will be doing is they'll just be facilitating these really great experiences for students and allow them to make their own connections. Because again, we're all moving 
to to grow and um, and be resilient. So remember your epiphany. Yes, and it, so really a guide across the zone of proximal development versus a transporter of content, which I think we we get caught up in. And certainly, you know, um, I think of my own advice for the teacher of 2030 or the instructor or, or faculty member of 2030, um, and that would be to trust your intuition. Um, I think that anybody involved in education understands that education is more calling than it is career. And those of us who are called have an innate sensibility. And, and sometimes that, that gets sapped, uh, you know, be, you know, through a variety of different ways. Um, and I, that was the whole idea behind reconnecting with, with epiphany, this, this idea of, uh, trusting your intuitive pedagogical artistry because it will come through in a clutch just as it did for every teacher who had to move to remote learning. Uh, you know, we, we again, everyone was caught off guard, but somehow we were able to reach down deep and, and make it happen. And I think that that sort of thing, the, you know, Gabby, what you've been talking about insofar as embracing chaos and Lisa, you, in your conversations uh, about really reframing it and thinking differently are really the essence of these creative conversations. And, and Lisa and Gabby, you are cherished colleagues uh, and, and vanguards. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate to be here in this creative conversation with you. <laughs>